0: Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond, and today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips, while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back Check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interviewed to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in founder plus so guys please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews that's it from me i hope you enjoy this episode now let's jump in
1: what you need is thirst you need to be a thirsty
0: human who is intent on learning
1: it's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential Now. 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 now the founder podcast even the greatest entrepreneurs had help
0: Hey, Founder Fam, welcome back to another episode of the Founder Podcast. Today, we're sitting down with Brad Peterson. He's the co-founder of Peeler, the creator of the world's first compostable phone case. He also started one of Canada's largest toy companies from his basement in Alberta. And in 2021, he raised over $9 million through Kickstarter for Lomi, the world's first smart waste device. We're gonna be talking about creating products that are better for the planet resiliency after failure, what it means to go bankrupt and come back again and take the courage to take risks. Please welcome to the Founder Podcast, Brad Peterson. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. The first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? So I tell people my life is a series of happy accidents. Um, The
1: reason why is... um, I mean, most people, if they look me up today, they would say, oh, he's one of the co-founders of Pila and Lomi, which is a waste innovation company that's committed to creating a waste-free future. But I can tell you that that was not the obvious path of where I would end up. So rewind to the early 90s, and I was in school to be a chiropractor. And why was I a chiropractor or why was I planning to be a chiropractor? Because my father was a chiropractor. My grandfather and grandmother were chiropractors. My great-grandfather was the first chiropractor in Denmark. <clears throat> and ever since I was about this high, people would say, one day you're going to grow up and be a chiropractor, just like your, your 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 dad and your grandpa. And I just kind of assumed that that was my career path. So I was in school to be a chiropractor, uh, took three years of education. Um, ultimately, I never ended up becoming a chiropractor. But the best thing that happened to me in that path is that I met my wife while I was at college. And she was on a separate... Uh, path going for education. She had a year um, between when I was finished my pre Cairo and when she was going to be finished her degree. And she let me know in a not so subtle way that she wasn't prepared to do a long distance relationship. So I decided to wait around a year. And uh, I'd always shown entrepreneurial tendencies as a kid. I had all kinds of side hustles as I was growing up. And so that one year of just space that was created um, allowed me to eventually start off what Became a toy company. Um, and, uh, you know, again, not an obvious path because where I was born and raised in Canada um, is known for agriculture and oil. There's no toy entrepreneurs really from my part of the world. Um, but I was always fascinated by toys. I was always playful. I really subscribed to that uh, George Bernard Shaw that we don't stop playing because we get old, we get old because we stop playing. I've always been a very playful person. My mom, in fact, my, my wife still accuses me of being a big kid. Um, and how that came about is I read an article in a magazine about a kid who had invented this toy that you could throw really far. And I was like, wow, that's super cool. And, uh, I was curious about what it would be to to play with it. So I bought some, um, brought it up. My buddies and I were throwing them back and forth going, wow, that's, that's incredible. And, uh, then I was like, well, how come no one's selling these in Canada? I I think there's gotta be an opportunity here. So uh, I contacted the manufacturer and fortunately for me, he was as naive about Canada as I was about the toy business. So it was a perfect sort of miley crew of, of combinations. And within a few days we had agreed to become his Canadian toy distributor. And of course I had no idea what that meant. Um, but the one thing I do know is that the only way you could sell these things, if you demonstrated them. So for a period of like two years, I basically was a carny, meaning I would travel from festivals and events and parks, with a kid I hired and we would throw this thing back and forth in the park and I'd walk in with a with a bag full of them and I'd walk out having sold like a hundred in a day. Uh 10, 10 bucks a pop, you know, it was a pretty good day having cash in your pocket. And, and it was like, This is this is pretty cool. I'm selling stuff, I'm I'm making some progress. But I very quickly learned that, you know, I'm not gonna build a very long lasting business if I'm the only person selling these. I'm gonna have to leverage myself and um and so that led to thinking through, well, how do I solve the problem of showing people how it works, knowing that they have to see it to be interested? So um, at that time in Canada, had a very famous quarterback for the, the Canadian Football League, I know different than Australian football for sure. Uh, but uh, his name was Doug Flutie, contacted his agent, put together a pitch to say, hey, we would pay him a royalty if he would agree to uh, let us film him throwing this thing really far. And uh, he agreed to it. And I got you know footage of him throwing it from end zone to end zone. We created a videotape that was six hours long and we put it in stores and it told the story and that ended up, you know, um, selling hundreds of thousands of pieces. In fact, we were more successful about product in Canada than any other place in the world, just based on the marketing, the storytelling that we we're able to do, particularly with a celebrity who locally was really, um, identified. I'm going to skip over a bunch of details cause I just kind of want to get to where uh, we are today, but l- I proceeded to scale that business with disruptive marketing ideas and doing all kinds of creative financing because of course I was you know young in my early 20s I didn't have credibility I didn't have credit so I was you know friends and family bag, borrow steel doing great creative stuff to try and buy inventory to sell but ultimately I was able to scale this business and it started to snowball and a bunch of people said hey you know you're good with this product Will you take our products and you know within very short period of time, by the early 2000s, we became the largest toy distribution company of our kind in Canada. And um, it was awesome. I was, you know, celebrated on um, this uh, the stage of success. You know, I was one of the fastest growing companies in Canada. I got to speak at conferences and it was just, you know, I was labeled as a wonder kid. And what I've since learned is that a little bit of the ego can lead to a lot of overhead and hubris ultimately is the beginning of the fall. Fast forward to 2006, uh, I'd found out the hard way that you can grow your company too fast. I got upside on my balance sheets where I broke covenants with my bank, who then put me into special loans. And after wrestling with uh, trying to figure that out with them, they um, ultimately forced me to do a restructuring, which is a very fancy word for bankruptcy. Um, brought in new capital, had a whole bunch of personal guarantees. Um bunch of new capital came in. We tried to fix the business, but the business model was broken and we didn't actually take the time to inspect, what we were expecting about that business model. Uh, and two years later, we actually bankrupted it for good. So two bankruptcies. And then there was actually a third bankruptcy cause that had a Hong Kong company that was attached to it. And ultimately that went bankrupt as well. So, um, and I can tell you that was a really, really difficult time in my life. Um, a bunch of shame. I had like seven figures of friends and family money in the company and, um, it was uh, it was really really hard to to sort of see forward, but you know I've come to learn that mastery is often found on a mountaintop of mistakes, and uh, and also just had developed this intense desire to just you know be resilient and to 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 build back from this. So I started a new company in 2009 that uh, was based on the things I didn't want to do anymore. They were kind of anti goals. Here's all the things that I did wrong in this distribution company. What do I want to do to? build something forward. And uh, that was the launch of a company called Tech for Kids. Uh, that company ended up being focused on product manufacturing instead of distribution. It was focused on international versus just Canada. Uh, we wanted to own products and own IP versus licensing from someone else. Uh, and we didn't want to carry inventory anymore. We wanted to do stuff on an FOB basis, shipping directly from our factories. And it was a very successful model. And we scaled that uh, Rapidly, learning from the the wisdom of our wounds of what happened in those earlier enterprises. Uh, Merged that company with a a US-based company in uh, 2017 uh, to have a company that was now doing nine figures in revenue, uh, multiple offices around the world, 130 employees. And yes, things sounded like they were all great. Within 90 days of that uh, merger, I got fired. And again, a really humbling moment in my history where I was... You know, going from top of the mountain, I'd rebuilt, I'd come back, I'd, you know, fought the odds and I was in a good place to being humbled to this very difficult place where how is a company that I was co-creator in that I founded, that I envisioned that suddenly I'm on the outside looking in. But what I've come to learn, and as I reflect back on all those points along my life, whether it was the bankruptcies or being fired from this company, is that, you know, often presents come wrapped Good presents come wrapped, great presents come with a bow, but the best gifts often come wrapped in ugly paper. And in every single one of those incidents, I can now look back and say, those were inflection points that forced me to reimagine my future. That if I hadn't hit the wall, if I hadn't run into that difficulty, I probably would have just kept plodding along on an okay existence. But literally the difficulties, the adversities became my advantage because I were like they were forcing functions of stopping to reevaluate and reassess. And I was given the time and the space capacity to reimagine a new future. And that's ultimately what led me to where I am today as um, a co-founder of a waste innovation company. We're, so with PILA, we're building the largest waste management company in the world without the trucks. And it's super aspirational. It's, you know, we, we are a solution to climate change were a solution to soil degrad- degradation and um, to the regenerative economy. And I couldn't feel more aligned with my worldviews and my beliefs that business can be the greatest force for good for people who really want to apply their agency and their passion purpose
0: towards solving big problems. Yeah. Wow. What an incredible story. So a few things I'd love to unpack. Um, uh, the first one is, but thank you, thank you for sharing, Brad. This is awesome. I'm glad I'm glad I said the long version. Put it this way. I'm glad I said the long version, say the short version, because there's a lot now for me to understand unpack and this is really interesting. So the first one is um you started a woodcutting business when you when you were 16. Is that correct? Correct. What story still stays with you from that business?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think. I tell, I tell people it was still the perfect business. If, if you're running a business today, you understand that, um, you, ultimately the idea is to achieve uh, escape velocity where you have profitability, right? And it often is hard to get there cause you have these initial startup costs. Uh, with that business, I had zero startup costs. So I had my dad's truck, his chainsaw, his splitting mall. And we lived in a place in Canada where we had access to crown land, which is basically forest that you could just go harvest as you needed to. So I had all these unlimited resources that I could just go tap into. And my real overhead was my sweat equity. And then when I eventually figured out that I could hire my buddies from school uh, to come in and do work, and then I could have the arbitrage on what I paid them and ultimately what I sold the wood for. so again, like if we're going to build a durable, enduring enterprise, it's how quickly can we get to a place where we hit achieve profitability, the sustainable, like profitability is sustainability. You know, I tell people that, you know, top line's vanity, bottom line's sanity, cash flow's reality. And as quick as you can get a model to that place, the better you are in building a business that ultimately can become
0: enduring and legacy. Yeah, I agree. 110%. Uh, And I hear you and feel you on uh, the humbling experiences and letting your ego get in the way and chasing revenue or top line uh, at all costs and all these different things. I've been there. So I want to talk about the bankruptcy. Um, Can you tell us how you got through that period? Because that must have been so incredibly tough and such a bruise to your ego And so you said the word shameful, like, you know, you you had friends and family's money in the business, but not even that, just like how others perceive you, I think would have been incredibly painful or that thought. So how'd you get through it?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And um, you know, I, I would say my I really have a high level of empathy for every founder entrepreneur who is going through difficulties and challenges, and that could be everything from laying off team members to, in this case, you know, the death of a business. And, you know, I, my wife and I joke, uh, we have two amazing kids and I'm super proud of them. Um, And I have a great relationship with my kids. I'm really fortunate for that. But my wife and I joke about that. She birthed those kids into the world. I was a part of it, but she ultimately birthed them. So there's a connection that I'll never understand that she has with our kids. Likewise, I birthed these businesses into the world. They were my baby. At least that's what I perceived it as. So it was really um, the death of a piece of me, a piece of my identity. Um, And at that time in my life in particular, so much of my identity was caught up in what I did, you know, Um, and I think that's a real trap that most entrepreneurs get into is that they really see their value in what they do instead of who they're becoming. Um, And, you know, when the business went into difficulty, I I just remember <laughs> being so sick, you know, laying in bed at night in in cold sweats because again, like just imagining all the hard conversations. You know, I came from a small town in, in Canada, and a bunch of the people had invested in the business because we were kind of this like going concern from the small town, uh, friends and family, and and uh, on top of that, I I really took it personal ownership that I had promised them. Uh, a result. Now, of course, that is absolutely in the world of entrepreneurship, you should never promise outcomes. You just can't, right? We're we're taking what's known and exploring the unknown, and you can't be certain about how that's going to turn out. It is an unknown. And people should be big enough to know that if you're investing into something, it, the potential is it could become a zero. But that's not how I perceived it. I perceived it that I was responsible and accountable for delivering a certain outcome. Um, and so I just it, it haunted me that these conversations were going to be so difficult, and they were. They were sickening. Um, and I knew that one day I wanted to to make it right. I knew that one day I wanted to do the extraordinary and be able to deliver on those promises, but I also knew that that could only happen if I was consistent, persistent, and resilient and be able to just push through the pain and not let those situations define me, but rather refine me to become the person who could build something that was uh, ultimately going to be valuable. Um, so when you're going through, as Church Trail said, when you're going through hell, you just gotta keep going. I think there's only a handful of things you can control. It's your circle of control. It's what you think, what you ultimately feel. I mean, you're gonna felt you're gonna feel whatever you're feeling at the moment, but you choose what you're ultimately gonna feel, what you say and what you're gonna do. And in a lot of ways, that's very um, comforting to know that your circle of control is like those four things. It's very limiting. Uh, the circle of concern, which is the macro world around you, you can't control. Like, I can't control the fact that the Earth is spinning at 16,000 kilometers an hour, that we're traveling around in a universe that's ever infinitely expanding. And I certainly can't control what's happening in the macro economy. And to me, it became comfortable to say the only thing I can control are those four things. And I got to control those to the best I can. And I think the most important thing is just keep moving. Most people stop, right? Like part of succeeding is failing. Like they talk about failing forward and how you fail often, fail fast, fail cheap. Like I think that is an important lesson that every entrepreneur needs to know that it is a series of making decisions that most are going to be wrong. Like if you're in baseball and you're batting 300, that means you're striking out seven out of 10 times, but you're an amazing batter at 300, but you're still striking out more than you're, you're batting. So you have to understand in business, it's the same. It's a bunch of experiments. You're trying things and that experiment could be the business itself. But it's just not stopping. So you're you're failing and you're learning from those failings. What you want to avoid is become a failure, which is when you get stopped and you get knocked down, you choose to stay down. And so for me, I just never believed that I would lay on my back for long, that I was gonna bounce back and I was gonna fight gravity and I was going to take the lessons and use those. How can I take this? this challenge and turn it into something that could be more valuable for me in the future? And how can I turn the adversity to my advantage? And um, the most important part of that is you just don't stop. You keep moving, even if they're baby steps.
0: Yeah, that was great advice. Thank you for sharing your experiences. Um, I'm curious as well, just around, I guess, the mistakes that you made, how you took that into your next business and build a better business model which you talked about can you tell us some of those lessons
1: oh yeah yeah so i pack unpack a whole bunch of this in a book that i have coming out later this year and um the first chapter is actually um so it's it's about stories from um, my experience in the toy business and i use toys as metaphors because I think play is about problem solving and we learn lessons from toys, probably un- unrealized lessons at the time, but that's a part of what we were doing when we were playing with play things. But the first chapter is on GI Joes and it's, it's sort of twofold. There's sort of lessons with GI Joes are inspired by the GIs from the 1950s and kind of the modern day version of the, of those heroes are the Navy seals. And there's two things. There's advance, but your flanks and slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So the first concept of advance, but protect the flanks is that, you know, growing at all costs is not a sustainable way for you to actually, when you grow a business, you're actually stressing it and you're exposing it to inherent risk by stressing it. And if you're not constantly reinventing three critical areas of the business, you're going to leave it open to flanking maneuvers. And those three areas for me are your people, your systems, and your capital. And I actually screwed up in all three of those (laughs) when I first on my very first bankruptcy restructuring bankruptcy um that I had this incredible loyalty to the team I started with and the team you start with is rarely the team you're going to finish with like the capacities what you need you know from zero to one aren't going to be the same capacity you need from one onwards right it's different and sometimes people can evolve and sometimes they can't but my experience is usually they can't usually you have to upgrade your team so that's one The systems, Uh, part of what led to um, our challenges is that we had an ERP uh, implementation that got botched. So we were getting junk data. We thought we were doing fine. We were looking at the numbers and the numbers were apparently good, but they weren't good. When we peeled back the layers during the audit, suddenly it was like, oh no, we're in trouble. So having the right systems in place to report data, give you the right KPIs and things that are important and not focusing on vanity metrics, I was always just chasing top line. Thinking that everything else will be solved if I just keep growing sales, everything else will get solved. Um, that's a fallacy, by the way. Um, and then the third, of course, is is just thinking about your cash. Like, what is it you need to grow your business and getting ahead of that? Um, and I would tell you to this day, th- those are um, those are key tenants in the way that we build businesses. I don't think about. Uh, growing our growth plan without thinking about those three things and how we're constantly reinventing and upgrading those all the time um so that would be just a quick sort of takeaway and then of course the idea that slow is smooth smooth is fast that you know as a young entrepreneur who's trying to get to escape velocity you know you maybe have proof of concept and maybe you've even a achieve product market fit or founder problem fit as my friends from the category pirates would say um you tend to still in small teams, make frenetic decisions. You move very quickly and that's the part that's great. You want to be nimble, but as you start to scale your organization, you start to make changes too rapidly. You start to like, create drag within, the, within your organization and you frustrate the teams and the team's ability to execute. Um, and you're having to go back and redo work all the time. And it creates a lot of inefficiency and frustration in the teams. So it's about making better quality decisions over just decisions to be quick. Yes, there is, should be a creative tension about being quick, but not being too quick. And I think it's kind of Colin Powell talked about the 40-70 principle that in making decisions, if you have less than 40% of the information, you're making, an ir- you're making an irresponsible decision because you don't have enough information. But if you're aiming for 70 beyond 70%, you're now just looking for confirmation bias. It's no longer a value. So it's how do we continue to move at a pace that isn't going to uh, distract our team's ability to continue to compound our efforts, but also at, um, at the same time,
0: you know, not too fast, not too slow. You want to make sure it's just right. The Goldilocks principle. Mm. That's a tricky thing to balance, though, especially <laughs> especially when you look at even the, you know, outside market. Right now, we've got AI. There are so many new tools that could speed up things. There's there's so much going on in the marketplace. Like, I'd love to explore that more. Like, How, how do you know like what is too fast? How do you know that you're not distracting your team or maybe have to? Be, like, yeah. From first principles. While the
1: world is accelerating at a rapid pace, and you mentioned AI, and I mean, literally every tech, technolo- technological advance over the last 20 years is just compounding exponential change. There is, within all that, there's more that is the same than is not the same. Why? Human behavior hasn't evolved that much. I mean, I would say most humans right now are overwhelmed by just the amount of information and the tools that are out there. Um, I, my thesis is that most organizations can't adopt all of this, these new tech tools in a uh, intelligible and or um, in a way that's actually going to be helpful for a business, unless you really take the time to be methodical about, you know, going through a process of setting strategy. Most important part is still, what is the vision direction for the company, right? And making sure that everybody in your leadership team agrees with that so they can weigh in, buy in for that. And then once you have that strategy, what are the tactics that we need to deploy to ensure that strategy happens? And then how do we hold people accountable to that? And there's always going to be more efficient ways to do it. I mean, you know, there was this idea that when they invented the computer that we were going to have to work 30% of the time. They didn't take into account that people were just going to become a lot more efficient. They wouldn't actually just, you know, sit back and work less. They would just take the efficiency of the computer and they would actually accelerate their ability to be more productive. And I look at AI tools as, as the same, right? There's incredible resources now where we can, you know, as I think about it for our company, Uh, Under customer experience, for instance, we're using AI tools to get our data set um, more uh, congruent and distilled to clear information so that people can answer and respond to customer issues on a quicker basis. We're using it to come up with more creative designs. We're using it for doing uh, any any sort of um, copy that we need to uh, translate or transmute into the marketplace. So... It's just allowing our team to be much more effective and efficient. And uh, yeah, it's going to disrupt certain positions, no doubt. Uh, But as long as you're creating value in the marketplace with what you do, you're safe. I tell people the minute you start to question your value, AI is probably gonna disrupt you. So think about what is the value ultimately that you're creating? Because that's how you're compensated. And if AI can do what you're doing, You might want to consider how you could change your value proposition in a way that instead of it competing with you, it complements you.
0: Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now, and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success, you should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs, people just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. Coming back to kind of, I guess, the idea of failure or or having a business that didn't work out, what advice would you give to founders that have been in this position where they've created a company and it didn't work out and are looking to start again?
1: Look, I... uh... I'm a big believer
0: in um, starting over again.
1: I think you should expect that during your life, you will have seven or eight opportunities to really make a meaningful impact, like a tentpole event in your life. And while life is short in the grand scheme of things, when you consider all of eternity, it's not that long you know, you should expect that you're going to live about 100 years. If you're listening to this podcast, the average age right now is, I think, coming up into the high 70s or early 80s, and they're getting better at, at, um, at, at, at extending life and not just extending, but quality of life. I mean, I listened to a podcast the other day with Ed mylet and uh, the, the gal being interviewed, her name was Gladys. She's 102 years old, and her clarity blew my mind. And I was like, wow, <laughs> that's a lot of hope. So since life is also long, which is a truism, that, you know, if you break it down into five to 10 year tranches of time, that's a lot of time to be able to create impact. So look at every opportunity as a learning opportunity. Everything that's happened to you didn't happen to you. It happened for you. And it's, a, it's the opportunity for you to reflect and to take the lessons. And, you know, there's kind of like three, when bad things happen, There's there's sort of three opportunities you have. Okay. The first is you can be a victim. You can just simply say, life dealt me bad cards, I'm a victim, and you're going to suffer from something I call the four B's, which number one, you're going to be blind to how you co-created the outcome. Uh, You're going to be begrudging uh, of of other people who are successful and somehow they got lucky, right? You see them going by, begrudging of them. You're going to be blaming all the circumstances and people around you, and ultimately you're going to be bitter. And as I think it was... Nelson Mandela said, you know, becoming bitter towards someone else or to some situation is like drinking a a bottle of poison, hoping that it's going to inflict pain on someone else. And of course, I'm paraphrasing that. So that is the one choice. You could become the victim or you become the bystander, which is, you know, um, life dealt me a hard hand and I just got my hands smacked. And you know what? I've decided that instead of actually leaning in, I'm going to just choose to be passive and be more on the sidelines. Yeah, I'm going to do enough just to get by. You know, I had big dreams and bad big aspirations, but I'd rather just sort of like not try too hard because I didn't like the pain that came from that situation. The third option is you can be the champion. And what do champions do? Champions get up and go again. They continue to choose to be the heroes amongst their hero's journey. They take all the wisdom they can from their wounds. They turn the adversity uh, to their advantage, they allow the challenges to forge their character. Um, you know, when you fail in life, challenges will either beat the strength out of you or beat the strength into you. You choose. You're going to face challenges. And all our challenges are going to be different. But at the end of the day, it's a required part of our humanity. Uh, I think it was Maslow who came up with like what the basic needs for for humans are. You need like water, shelter, companionship, food, food, uh, these are kind of the baseline things. Well, I'd add to that. You need struggle. Like you literally do not become any, nothing great ever happens without the ability to go through the crucible of difficulties. And while our difficulties are going to be different for all of us, like my father told me that if money can solve my problems, it's not really a problem. And quite frankly, all my problems pretty much have been money problems. I don't have health problems. I don't have family problems. Thank God. Um, but money problems, I know a lot about. I've had a bunch of those. And um, so everybody's challenges are d- going to be different. But at the end of the day, those challenges are there to refine you and not to define you. So if you have gone through difficulties, you are going through difficulties, my advice to you is choose to find the lessons that are there that can help you choose again and choose in ways that will help you advance yourself to become the best and
0: brightest version of yourself. Yeah. Yeah, look, that was incredible. I, uh, yeah, I, I can't agree more, but being in that is so difficult, right? When, when you're in it, it is so difficult sometimes to see that light. And did you have any, did you have a really great support network? Did you, you know, like, what did that look like? W- were there any external things that really helped you when you're in those positions?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would, tell people that the underpinning of my sport was my, my wife. She she probably should have hit the eject button several times on our journey. We've been together over 30 years. Um, when she said, you know, I marry you for better or worse. I'm pretty sure she said not for this. (laughs) And, uh, but she never did. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, it was the one thing I, you know, became kind of that, the backstop, um, You know, Rock bottom can become a great foundation to build from because you get to start over. You can't go any lower. It's just, it's a great foundation just to start again. And it particularly is helpful when you have a partner in life who's going to be standing beside you. And she never wavered. And, you know, there was tough days. Lawyers came to the house to collect on it, you know, and that was a really tough day for her. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think um, beyond that, my faith. And I, uh, you know, I... (laughs) I daily, the mantra for me became Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will guide your paths. I said that over and over and over. I'd go to the gym in the mornings and I just literally just was my mantra. You know, I'd be meditating. I would just say that over and over again. And it just, it helped instill hope. Um, you know, I, I believe there's two things that fundamentally motivate all human behavior. Um, fear and hope. Um, Fear is natural. It's just not optimal, but it's the natural, it's that uh, reptilian brain of like something happens and we automatically default to fear. And that's part of what's kept us alive. And when saber-toothed tigers are chasing us, you know, millennia ago, what kept us alive. Um, And so it's really naturally where we go to, but hope is more powerful. And it's what do I need to do to continue to uh, just hit the drum of hope. Um, if, you, if you like sports, you see this happen all the time, and pick whatever sport you want. Um, I mean, the recent World Cup is maybe a good example, right? Where Argentina was up 2-0. And I think it was in the 75th minute, France scored a goal. I mean, it looked like Argentina was going to walk away with that game. Because, you know, they were just, they dominated the field, they dominated possession, and then all of a sudden, a goal was scored. And suddenly, France had hope. And that game transitioned. Ultimately, Argentina won. But let me tell you, it wasn't an obvious outcome, right? I mean, it went right to... It was probably the most exciting World Cups I've ever seen to see France come back and score two goals quickly like that and then to go to overtime. It was incredible. But it was there you saw when teams have hope, they are playing to win. When teams have fear, they're playing not to lose. Playing to win is often way more powerful than playing not to lose. And, um, and so I, my encouragement to anybody who's going through difficulties, is find ways that will inspire hope, surround yourself with people who will actually build hope into you. They're balcony people that help lift you up instead of pull you down. And, um, you know, I can tell you between my wife, my faith, and I have a very small network cause you kind of pointed something out. There was a lot of shame. I, you know, when you go through difficulties, you find out who your real friends are there's a bunch of fair weather friends who like being around you when things are great. Uh when you smell like bankruptcy, it's 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 very revealing about who really cares about you and who sees the inner character that ultimately will prevail because time and character over time ultimately are will
0: sh- will demonstrate what's true. Mm, yeah, I agree. Um one last question on this and then I want to move to Pilar and me. Um you talk about hope, right? When, you, when you're when going through a turnaround phase or you're going for a rebuild phase or starting from scratch again. Strategies can't be built on hope
1: though. Uh, well, I think I agree. You always see, you hear the statement, hope is not a strategy. Um, look, I think it comes down to hope is a part of our human emotion. And if you think about what hope is, Hope is not something that can happen in the past that was regret. Hope can't be in the now that's being realized. Hope can only ever live in the future. It's something you're hoping for. So it speaks to reimagining a future that can be better. And if that's all you have then you're right. It's it's it, it potentially could just be a fantasy. The value of hope is that it lays out a vision for the future, something you can imagine. And the right entrepreneur will now put the building blocks in place that takes what you've imagined and make it into reality. But it starts with hope. And, you know, I I have a a thesis on this. I call it the the courage flywheel. Um, And hope is a part of it because it is about imagining. But courage is of the four original virtues that Aristotle talked about. Um, I think courage is the the most powerful because it requires action. And the best definition I've come up with courage is that it's taking action despite uncertainty. It's that bliss point between recklessness and cowardice. You're right in the middle there. And there's a flywheel that I think that builds, uh, uh, entrepreneurs capacity to grow themselves and starts with curiosity. I call it the six C's. Curiosity is the first thing you get curious about a problem you want to solve, um, that thing goes into creativity. You creatively come up with a solution, but ultimately it takes the courage to actually try, right? I mean, just having ideas, ideas are like noses. Everybody has one taking that idea and putting it into action. The courage to do that. That's when the real rubber hits the mo- road. And once you do that, you should expect challenges. That's just part of the deal. Um, we'll talk about that even with like with Pila and Lomi, because there's a whole bunch of challenges that we had to overcome as we've been trying to create that category. And the challenges then form your character. They give you a a new sense of understanding about yourself and your ability to push through those pains and often more creativity along the way. And if you're building character, that leads to confidence and confidence ultimately gets you back to being more curious again, which starts the process of creativity, courage, and on and on, and it builds a flywheel that grows you. So hope is on its own, not that helpful, but with intentional action, and a the courage to actually attempt to, to build things and,
0: and put them into reality, it's incredibly powerful. Mm, that makes sense. Thank you for sharing. Um, so let's talk about Peeler. Uh, that's you know, can you share how you're able to develop the the first iteration of the f- phone case?
1: Yeah, great, great question. So. Maybe I can just kind of play into the story of me getting fired and how I ended up falling into this opportunity, if that's yeah, helpful. Yeah, that is very helpful. Let's start there. And I think it speaks to the power of associations too. So um, back in 2012, I joined a mastermind talks group. This is an entrepreneurial meetup with a bunch of really fascinating founders from around the planet, really incredible people. And um, I, you know, some of my best friends come from that to, to this day. Um, we were at a meetup in 2015 in Napa Valley. And while I was there, I met an entrepreneur by the name of Matthew Bertulli. And Matt and I discovered that we were both from Toronto. We both were founders and we both had a passion for mountain biking. And so we decided when we get back to Toronto, we're gonna hang out and, and do stuff together. Um, so that's exactly what happened. And our relationship grew and eventually we actually became a part of the EO form together. And uh, you know we, we just built a really great relationship. Um, I had just been fired from my my toy company and I was at one of our uh, EO forum meetings in Boston and we had a delay in the airport and um, that delay proved to be providential to where I am today because we were sat in this lounge drinking a glass of wine talking and he was mentioning about a company he'd invested into called Pila that made these uh, biodegradable compostable phone cases and the founder, a guy named Jeremy, had come up with a material science of how to create them, but he just didn't know how to market them. Well, Matt is a world-class marketer, and he started doing the marketing, and all of a sudden, it was growing like crazy, and they couldn't keep up. They couldn't scale it. There wasn't enough capacity to meet that. And all the problems he was describing they were having, I'm mean, like, I, you know, I've shipped billions of pieces of toys around the planet. I know exactly how to scale something like this. And as we talked about the opportunity, it just became obvious that maybe there was a way for us to work together. But, you know, kind of like wisdom from your wounds, I didn't want to rush into a partnership where I'd end up like being fired from a company that I (laughs) would co-found sometime later. So we decided to take the time to really figure out, did we have a proper uh, fit as founders, as co-founders? And we went through, did uh, assessments, personality tests, took some time and it just, it worked really well. I mean, we just looked at skills and backgrounds and sets and we had external coaches kind of look at it and they said yeah it looks like you guys are all a really good fit and would we'll work together. So in the spring of 18 I became the co-founder of Pela Case and Pela Case makes compostable biodegradable uh, protective wear for smart devices. You now phone cases, airpod cases, uh straps watches, even my ring is made out of the Pila material. And it's super cool because at the end of life you can put these into a home composting bin. And they return to the planet responsibly. They go back to being dirt. Um, One of the challenges that we ran into, and this kind of leads to Lomi, if you want me to continue to tell that part of the story, because most people ask me, like, how are they connected? So um, most people don't have access to home composting infrastructure. And or if they have industrial infrastructure for composting, um, most industrial composers don't take compostable biodegradable materials. They take food waste and then they don't want to try the other stuff because they don't know what is or is not. So they filter it out and they just send it to landfill. And that's not really the right environment. So we started thinking about how do we solve that problem? And, uh, and that's ultimately what led to Lomi. And uh, you know, Lomi was designed to resolve the end of life for the, um, the, the, the organic waste that we are creating through our end of life of our, our phone cases. But it also turned out to be an incredibly valuable tool for food waste. And then we discovered, well, food waste is a massive problem. In fact, um, as a contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, it's one of the top because of the methane gas emissions that are out there. And if we could solve that problem, it would make massive difference and dent in how climate change is, is, you know, continue to propagate across the planet. And we're reading about in the headlines today, right? Record temperatures (laughs) throughout the world. It's, I think people are starting to say, hmm, I don't know this is a theory anymore. I think it's real. The unexpected great, okay, so we've we've, we've created this machine. It's, you know, we call it a magic dirt making machine. Um, The unexpected great was that we found out that the output that we call loamy earth turns out to be this really valuable regenerative output that is a superfood for plants. And it not only is great for plants, but it also is a carbon sequesterer. And so we're in the process of actually validating that Lomi will be a carbon asset, which is incredibly cool that we're not only diverting methane or eliminating that altogether, but also now creating something that captures carbon and helps do decarbonization at a mass level. So we we launched this product on a crowdfunding campaign in April of 2021. It went on to become the largest cleantech crowdfunding campaign of all time. Uh, We have since shipped close to 200,000 units into the market. It's right now focused in North America, but we're very quickly evolving so that you will be able to get these in Australia and other places in the world very soon. And uh, I couldn't tell you that I just feel so excited about the impact that this is making um, and aligned with my worldviews and values being put towards an enterprise, a social enterprise that ultimately will make a difference a hundred years from now when I'm not here, that this will have made a difference for that generation. And it just feels so cool. And I feel very
0: humbled and grateful to be a part of it. Yeah, man, I have to say that that is, uh, there's so much I want to ask. Like I've got tons of questions, but I'm conscious of time as well. It's, it's almost been an hour. Uh, this has been awesome. Look, a couple of questions, right? With with Lomi, you guys raised $9 million, uh, give or take, um, just from that crowdfunding campaign. That's, that's really, really, really impressive. Can you share like any advice or or the marketing piece? We've done a crowdfunding campaign for Founder, but it was a long time ago. We sold a coffee table book. It was up there at one point in time with one of like the top 10 most crowdfunded books, but that was a long time ago now. But yeah, like advice on the marketing piece?
1: Yeah, look, I I mean- Matt would be the way better to speak specifically to you know what were some of the the key insights to the marketing, but um, I can just tell you from somebody who was deeply involved in of it. Um, we uh, first of all, it requires a team. It requires focus. This is not something you do off the side of your desk. This is a really this is your lightning strike, and you are creating a an event that you're building around. Um, and storytelling—that's the real magic. I mean. If you go back and look at the hero video that we used on a crowdfunding campaign, you can still see it. It's on YouTube today. That has been watched now almost 200 million times. Why? Because it was such brilliant storytelling, identifying the problem, seeing the world as it is and the world as it could be, and taking, you know, focusing on the pain versus like, okay, so let me step back and say that products that focus on being painkillers are more effective than those focused on being vitamins. They both have a place. And the cool thing about Lomi is it really is a vitamin. It's great for the planet. But we really focused on the painkiller side of it. Number one, food waste is gross. It's messy. There's rodents. There's pests, all kinds of stuff around that. And we really focus on that problem. But then we also tease out the aspiration of, hey, maybe with the push of a button, you can help solve a big problem that the world is facing. And I think that captured people's imagination. So, um, you know, I give my partners are incredible at what they do. Matt is an amazing storyteller. And that video, a lot of that was his brainchild, which is why he's the face of that video. Um, and certainly, I, you know, we just, we had a team focused on it. I will tell you that when we launched the campaign, our goal was a million dollars. And in crowdfunding, that is like, that's a unicorn. That's hard to do. I used to do crowdfunding campaigns back when I was in the toy business. And, you know, if you got to six figures, that was like, wow. Um, I tell people in, you know, in, in comparison, Peloton did, I think 250,000 in their crowdfunding campaign. Right. So to achieve $9 million on a crowdfunding campaign was like beyond our expectations, but that also teased out for us. Okay. We went from, you know, do we have product market fit to oh, we have product market fit now we need to figure out how do we scale? and do this in a way that's
0: sustainable and enduring. Awesome. Thank you for sharing. Um, so you, you mentioned that, uh, was it you and Matt, there are an EO forum together? Correct. Yeah, um, so I used to, I was at EO for five years, now YPLR, doing business is not encouraged. Yeah, <laughs> it's, you're 100% right. How'd you get around that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so no, no, that's, I, I love that question because it's funny. You're right. You're not supposed to. I mean, it's, it's becomes, uh, for you to show up in a forum and be able to speak truth. It's hard to have that happen when you have a conflict with someone in the group. Um, so it is the absolute right way to think about it. So what ended up happening is that we, uh, we exited the forum at the next meeting because of the conflict.
0: So we were totally in integrity with living out the values of EO. This, this is a, this is an interesting one. Uh, somewhat controversial. I feel like you'd be cool to, uh, to, to answer it. Um, how do you respond to critiques that say no matter how eco-friendly your business is, its existence is inherently wasteful?
1: I don't think I've had to respond to that question, but I'm going to give you as thoughtful of his response. Look, I think that it would be easy to look at the glass half full with the planet. It's problems. I mean, one of the things I hear often is that um, reduce, reuse, recycle, and we need, to, um, we need to enforce those values on developing countries. And I tell people that's not fair. Why would we enforce values on them that, quite frankly, we didn't have to live into when we were trying to achieve the quality of life we have today? What we have to do is reimagine how we do these things in a way that is, is less harmful and, in many cases, actually helpful um, you know, we used to power the world with whale oil. That's crazy when you think about it today. But at the time that was just what we did. We just went out, harvested whales or, or, or bat poop. That was the other, uh, you know, that was used for grease and lubricants as well as for, for, um, for, uh, fuel. And it's just what we knew at the time. So we went from, that type of economy to coal to petroleum and now we're transitioning to uh this electrification and all of these have been you know they have improved the quality of life they've improved the 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 gdp of the countries the quality of life that we've been able to achieve as humans the best time in history to be alive right now right um and at the same time given us a more sustainable path because we are aware of the problems with what we're currently using so yeah, I mean, the best thing for this planet is probably just humans one way altogether, right? We, it would probably thrive really well without us, but that's not how it works. I believe we were called to actually be the caretakers of this planet. And I think we were given the God-given gifts to actually come up with sustainable solutions that benefit both people and the planet. And it's been greed and ego and a number of other things that have gotten in the way from us actually achieving that. But I think as we learn from our history... Uh, we will not repeat the mistakes. And I think we have the potential to actually design and develop a better future. And I actually believe we live in the greatest time ever. And I'm more inspired and excited about the future, even though we do face some really significant challenges, but there are some bold entrepreneurs out there who are doing really cool things to say, I wanna be a part of the solution. Why not now? And why not me?
0: Yeah, no, look, I hear you. It's uh, incredibly rewarding when you're creating a product or a service that solves a deep problem, but then also drives humanity forward. That's that's an incredibly rewarding thing to be able to say that you can make a difference. Um, So look, we have to move to the hot seat round and we're going to wrap. So rapid fire questions and answers, but uh, I could talk to you all day, Brad, this has been awesome. Um, What's your go-to outdoor activity? Mountain biking. What daily habit makes you a better founder? I spend
1: time in
0: meditation
1: um, and stretching. I do it together because I actually on my own can't sit in my own thoughts just doing nothing. I stretch and I meditate at the same time and that helps me
0: get through both. Mm, That's a good hack. What advice do you wish you knew when you'd started in business and entrepreneurship? My
1: father said it to me. I'm not sure I heard it when he said it. But now that I remember it, it was profound. Don't despise the process for what it'll make of you. You're, you're, you're going to go through life and you're going to see challenges and look at them as what they are, character forming moments. They're building your character and your resilience to become the person that ultimately can be their, their
0: best and brightest version of self. Last question, my favorite hot seat one. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Gosh, that's a great
1: question. I uh, I think I'd go with alive and um, I'd probably be Elon Musk. Um, you know, he seems like an obvious choice, I think, for a lot of founders. But I just I love the fact, if you know his story and where he was um, when he was at that sort of precipice with uh, – you know, all his money was into Tesla and or SpaceX and both seem to be failing. He literally was like living uh, in other people's places and had no money left. And that's after having a massive exit from PayPal. So it, it hurts, I think a lot of founders heads to actually know that he took all those chips off the table and then put them back into the marketplace. Um, what kind of courage, you know, what did he have to go? Like, I think my challenges is one thing, his challenges were in another level and now he's got, you know, companies that are solving massive problems. I just would love to pick his brain about what was going to your mind back then? And could you see
0: where you are today? Love, love to just pick his brain about. That. Yeah, I agree. Uh, awesome. Well, look, Brad, thank you so much. This was an incredible interview. Thank you for just sharing so many just real experiences and raw experiences. Uh, I know this will help a lot of founders. So thank you again.
1: Nathan's been great. I, I, I'll actually know you're one of the first podcasts I ever listened to. So I know you've been doing this for a long time. You're one of the OGs in the podcasting world. And I want to thank you for just being a beacon
0: of hope to founders and entrepreneurs around the planet. Oh, thank you. That's really cool to hear. I'm honored. Thank you so much. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business.